Good morning. You found John chapter 17 in your Bibles uh, by this point. Uh, those who don't know, we've been in a, a series, sort of. Uh, it's not been three weeks in a row, but I just felt led to look for us to look at, uh, at, John's, at John's account of Jesus' intercessory prayer for his people, uh, just leading up to his arrest and his trial and sufferings. Uh, let's pray together and commit our time to the Lord. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together this morning before you to hear from your words. Please, as others have already prayed, open our hearts to what you have for us. We commit the time to you and pray you will guide my words, you will seal into our hearts whatever is true and right and needs to be uh, kept and, and held on to, and the rest you'll, you'll just blow away. Commit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to learn from this, this third and final point, of course, we see very clearly the desire of Jesus' heart that we have unity among us. Uh, so that subject will get most of our attention this morning. The unity the Lord desires and the challenges we face in, in maintaining it. You probably know the little point uh, to dwell above with those we love. Oh, that will be glory. But here below, with those we know, that's a different story. So, and that is really it captures for us Jesus' desire that, that we have those kinds of relationships, and yet uh, the reality that we often fall short because we aren't as more brave or fallible. We, we, uh, we fail the Lord each other in many ways. Now, just to look back a bit, we've seen in the first five verses of the Spirit that Jesus' focus was on his relationship with the Father and, and the glory that they shared together. And the fact that his, his work was finished and then he transitions immediately to praying for his first disciples because their work really was just beginning. And so he prays that they would be one, we'll talk about today. He prays that they'll be kept in the Father's name because now they no longer belong to the world, but they belong to the Father. And that brings conflict and suffering. So he prays that they'll be kept and sustained. And he prays that they'll be made holy, they'll be sanctified by the truth. And then he, we come to verse 20 where the, uh, Christine read for us a moment ago and he turns his attention to pray for the, the next generations, those who are yet to believe through the words of those to whom his words are now committed. And so his prayer is, is for them. It's not stretching things at all to understand that Jesus was praying for us even in this moment. Even, even as perhaps Judas and the soldiers are on their way toward uh, the garden where he's about to go in a few minutes, he is, 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 he is not, um, his heart, his desire, his focus is on the Father and it is on us. And it is, it is amazing to find a great encouragement. So as he prays, we'll see this this morning, we'll see three things. We'll see him praying for our present unity, that is for us to, as a church to be characterized by unity. We'll see his prayer for our future glory, our future with him. And then we see something of his ongoing labor. He even, I think he looks past uh, the cross and the resurrection, what he will continue to do even after those things. So this is what's on his heart, even in these final moments, as, he, as he, his sufferings are about to begin in earnest. So as we pick up at verse 20, uh, notice first the, the confidence with which Jesus prays. The things that are foundational as he prays. He says in verse 20, I won't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He is confident that these 
disciples have taken his word that he received from the Father and have made it their word. They, they have owned it. They, they've heard it. They've received it. They've embraced it. And now his word that he received from the Father is in fact their word. They, they, have, they have owned it personally. And, and that's huge. That's, um, that's, that's an essential part of the process of, of, of evangelism and, and the gospel advancing. And then He's confident that they will share this with others, right? I mean, he says, there will be others who will believe through the word. This is a word that's proclaimed. It might be proclaimed uh, by text and by <laughs> various forms of application. I feel like every conversation these days, I download a new app to, you know, everybody has their, their thing. So there you go. Um, just me being dragged into the 21st century. I, I suppose I'm in the 21st by now, maybe. I still struggle getting in the 20th sometimes. So they have owned his word. They've taken it. They've embraced the faith personally. He assumes he is confident. They will proclaim it. They will share it. They will declare. They will preach Christ to the ends of the earth. Many of them will pay for it with their lives. And despite their, their failures, I mean, he remember just a few minutes before this, he has said, you are all about to abandon me. Peter will deny him. Judas has already left to bring back soldiers for the betrayal. And yet he is confident that they will recover from this failure and they will be faithful and they will proclaim him. They will declare him to a, to a world that is lost. And he is also confident that there will be people who will hear what his disciples say and they will believe. And in believing, they will have life as a gift in his name. It's beautiful. Now, if you're here today and you have not yet believed, you need to know believing is all you have to do. <laughs> Salvation, forgiveness is available to those who, by the grace of God, put their hope in Jesus. There is no good deed you can add to this. You, you, in, you cannot turn to Christ without turning from yourself. That's called repentance. And you turn to Christ in faith. That is, that is it. It is not... There is no deed for you to perform. There is no ritual. There is no liturgy. It is you putting your hope in Jesus who died and rose again. And that is all there is. So take heart in that and be encouraged today if you want to know how, how can I be reconciled to God? How can I know God? How can I know forgiveness? It is by believing in Jesus. And this is plan A. I mean, Jesus from the beginning invested in these early disciples with the intent that they would pass on what they received. And that's how it happens today. You and I heard the gospel from somebody. Maybe many times. I heard the gospel several times before. One night I heard it as if I'd never heard it before. And the Lord saved me, changed me. But immediately there was this impulse in me to share it with others. That, that's how it happens. That's how it happens now. So with those things in place, then he prays for our unity. We see this, verse 21, I pray that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. So he prays that the unity will characterize us. He prays we'll have the kind of relationship that exists between him and the Father. Now, this is amazing. This is not just avoiding conflict, right? Now, you know, you'll have the Christmas holidays coming up, Americans have American Thanksgiving coming up, maybe the families, and we know, you know, you get around your relatives and there are things you don't talk about, right? You know, you're avoiding conflict. And I go back to my family in the U.S., and I've probably told you all this before, but 
you know, I have, have four sisters. They're all older than I am. It's amazing. And, uh, but, you know, one sister is vegan. So, I mean, not only vegetarian, you know, no milk, no honey, no eggs. The other sister, until her husband died a couple of years ago, she would go on big game hunts. I mean, she has a deer head mounted over her desk. She brought antelope chili to, you know, my mom's house one time. So, you know, there are just things we don't talk about at mom's house, you know. We kind of know how to pass the food, you know, broccoli goes one way, the chili goes one way. You know, it's okay. You know, it's, it's avoiding coming. You do that. That's as well as what family does. But Jesus calls us to something much, much more radical than this. He is calling us to the kind of relationship that exists between him and the Father. It's, it's astounding. How, how in the world do we do this? But and we see why it's important, because it is a huge message to outsiders that we who are from the nations, we who would normally not be found together, we who would normally not be in a relationship, can, can stand and sit and sing together and embrace one another and love one another, encourage one another and meet one another's needs. That's amazing. You think about what this looks like in an international church. There's what, 20 countries represented here today? A dozen or so church backgrounds, maybe more. And yet here we sit in one room, a borrowed facility from <laughs> People who don't quite agree with us on some things, thankfully, because we get a really reasonable rate on a really nice worship facility. Because they were here yesterday, we're here today. I learned, by the way, I'm a Baptist background, for those who don't know, there were for a while, probably about two weeks, uh, Seventh-day Baptists. They actually, you know, they were Baptists, but they met on Saturday, I think, again, lasted a week or so. But anyway, I don't know. But how did how is this to happen? Well, Jesus says in verse 22, he says, The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we will. So what, is, what does this mean? Jesus talked about the glory he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. And it seems like he is, he is saying that, that out of his relationship with the Father, his union with the Father, comes this, this glory, this radiance, this honor, this gravitas, this, this light that, that draws people. And he has passed that on to us. It can be the glory of, of faithful services. As we've seen before, you know, it says in John 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says in John 2, when Jesus changed the water into wine, that the disciples saw his glory. Well, you know, I mean, you have water, it's wine, that's cool. Would you call that glory? You know, it's it's a it's an act of service. I mean, it, it meets a a practical need out of the way. And yet, John said, in that we saw his glory. Yes, it's a, an amazing creational type miracle, but it was not so spectacular. And yet, and yet John says, in that, that his disciples saw his glory. So he gave us this glory. He has passed that on to us. That is, what that means is out of our relationship with Christ, both individually and, and as a body, we are unified. We are of one mind. We're of one heart. And that becomes a powerful witness, a powerful witness to those who do not yet know the Lord. It becomes a light because they see people from every continent. Now, nobody here from Antarctica, I'm guessing. But anyway, from the other continents, we're here. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, I look 
at your faces today, and I just see from different parts of the world, different languages, and yet you and I are gathered. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Francis Schaeffer said this, it is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well and we're standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time, observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians. And Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. So what is this unity for which Jesus prays? It's first, it's a relational unity. It means our relationship, as I said a moment ago, should be marked by the same kind of things that mark the relationship between Jesus and his Father. And we saw this a couple of weeks, the first message I preached from John 17. I know you'll remember it all, but just in case that, you know, visitors, you may not remember every word. We talked about how this relationship is marked by first by glory. Jesus said in verse 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. There is a, a shared glory. Uh, and we, we share that glory as we savor the Lord's presence among us as we worship. But we, we savor his, his presence and His glory as we speak to one another, as we sing, as we hear the word taught and preached, and, and as we honor and serve one another. As Paul says, Philippians 2, just before what Roy read earlier, you know, um, with all that the Lord has done, the mercy He has shown, the, the compassion and tenderness that comes from Christ. You know, do not look out for your own interests, but, but put the interests of others ahead of your own, that kind of thing. And then there's a, a shared life in verse 10. Jesus says this, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. He and the Father, they share everything. It's, it's like marriage. You know, Karen and I, we've lived together 28 years now. And I mean, we share everything. Um, we don't exactly share clothes. I mean, like she'll wear my t-shirts. The only things of hers I wear are the things she stole from me. You know, if that makes sense. So don't be thinking I'm running around and you know weird stuff. But not that she dresses weirdly. Dress beautifully. You're amazing. So I'm going to move on. This, you know, this is why I write this out and, and don't say stuff. Like that. But we have it is shared life. It, it is life together. We draw life from each other. We, we live together. And that is true in the church too. We're not an organization. We have organizational things, but we are, more than that, we are a living body. When, one, when somebody suffers, the other body hurts. I've been so blessed. I, I see you guys kind of stepping up to meet needs in the body. I, I'm blessed when we serve communion and, we, and I, I see people of different cultures serving one another. That's a, a great blessing to me. It's um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And then there is shared love in verse 24. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there's this, this shared love, and we share those things too. So I love seeing how it gets, gets lived out here. And it really only matters because we're different, right? I mean, Ian had a scene this morning, said, you know, you can, this is a clapping song. And, and I know some of you clap, but you know, I, it's just not clapping. <laughs> so, uh, especially when we do the really fast typing, like, no, I'm not there. I, can, I might hit every fourth one, you know, I can, can do that. It's, that's okay. You guys are clapping. Some raise hands, some don't. And, and that is okay. It's, it, it's, it's beautiful. We can love one another. We're not just avoiding contact. We're actually appreciating. I can appreciate people who clap. 
like, yeah, I appreciate you. I do. Raise a game. It's, it's good. Worship styles. I have to say, it, I really enjoyed, like Tom's series on, on the, the Ten Commandments. It was, it was great. It was enriching. I love and respect Tom so much. It was so fun to have different worship leaders week by week. And Sharon just led us so beautifully, right? Just such a sweet voice and passionate. And, and you know, and, and so Sharon leads us, and then we go to Tom. And you know, it was it was a culture change, right? It's just like you're driving down the road, you hit the brakes and do a turn. Like you shift from these magnificent courses to to the Ten Commandments. And, and the man of Sharon and Tom, it was different. It was beautiful. I, I just, I kind of chuckled, but I thought it was really sweet. I, I can treasure both of them. I can learn from both of them. I'm enriched by both and blessed by both. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's, that's how this is supposed to look. So, this kind of unity is also reflected to some degree in, in a shared belief. Okay? It's, it is, there's this relational side to it, but it's not just relational, it's also doctrinal. That might be a bad word for some of you, but I hope we can, we can clear some of that up. Because the unity that Jesus prayed for us to have is experienced by those who have believed the gospel. Okay, that's, that's the core of the, of the biblical message, that Jesus died and rose again for us. And if Jesus, who is the subject of the gospel, if he's misrepresented, in particular by questioning, denying, or distorting his deity or his humanity, then the gospel is obscured if not lost. So the relational unity is impossible without some kind of unity in what we believe. We see this in several places in the New Testament where it talks about the faith as a settled body of belief, not like a, a highly detailed technical systematic theology book, but a settled consensus of what we believe. And the church actually fleshed out many of those things over the next few hundred years. But we see also like in, in uh, Jude, he calls it the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So you see this even in biblical times, that there is a, a consensus of belief. And you know, some people say, well, and you take the Trinity, nobody believed in the Trinity until the fourth century. Well, the word wasn't there, but you cannot read the New Testament without seeing. It oozes Father, Son, and Spirit. So the early church was Trinitarian before the word existed. So don't get bent out of shape and don't, don't be misled by people who, who tell you different. You can, it, it is there. Um, so our unity is reflected to some degree in the fact that we have agreement on what we call major truths of the Bible. This doesn't mean we agree on everything Scripture says. We understand, especially in this room, we'll have people who, who have a high view of Scripture, who love the Lord, and yet come to a different conclusion about some of the teachings on Things like maybe how church is done, baptism, end times. I think especially with end times, you really have to have a lot of humility. I'm, I'm reminded that in Jesus' day, the people who knew their prophecy the best unknowingly fulfilled them by crucifying it. So you can think about that for a minute. But what I mean is when it comes to prophecy, we really need a lot of humility. So I am not on the program committee. I'm on the welcoming committee when it comes to the return of the king. So... I'd be happy if that turns out. Fun to look at, fun to try to understand, but in the words of 38 Special, hold on loosely. So, sorry, just was in the 70s for a second. I'm um, 
sometimes people who call for unity among Christians would have us look for the, the lowest common denominator as to say we, we should unity is the most important thing so the things we disagree on we will just uh, we'll just jettison those and, and we'll have you know what some would call a consensus of the lowest common denominator and we've seen this in history before in the, the late 19th century there were several mission movements that culminated in 1910 but it's called the uh, Edinburgh Missionary Conference. So it was actually born out of this text in John 17, unity that drove mission. That all sounds good, and at the beginning, it was really characterized by a gospel-driven, strongly theological clarity, consensus, and a passion for missions. But ironically, over time, as things widened, they went for the lowest common denominator theologically, and the influence of theological liberalism killed their mission impulse. So it, it's really ironic. Their quest for unity for the sake of mission killed their mission because it was not gospel-centered. And so we don't have to agree on everything Scripture teaches, but there are some important things in place. The John 17 is clear. Unity is not based on the lowest common denominator. It's based on the gospel. That is, that is what brings us together. That is what allows us to love one another and treasure one another, encourage one another, and these that all comes to flows from the gospel that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died and rose again for us. <clears throat> so this helps us maintain unity also in the face of false teaching because there is that. that that's sort of what complicates things today because you have teaching that claims to be Christian and yet it's not. Say, so, well, let's think of unity. Maybe we should just accept it all. And you know you can't do that, right? True unity is gospel-based. So groups who deny the gospel or the Christ it proclaims are not part of that unity. We're, we're not, we can't be one with them if they deny Jesus. So it's entirely appropriate in the, the teaching ministry of this church to be clear that, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they're not Christian groups. They both have a deeply defective Christology, a deeply defective understanding of Christ. It's appropriate for us to be clear that the prosperity gospel that's, that's taught by American stars like Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn, that's a false gospel. It is. It's false, and it will, it will destroy you. And, and elders and, and teachers here don't do you any favors if, if we gloss over differences. We can acknowledge those. We can acknowledge, acknowledge differences that don't hinder our fellowship. But the closer something gets to the gospel, the more important it is to be clear, and the more important it is, is to agree. So I've intentionally focused our thoughts on unity at our, the level of our local fellowship. But when we look at the New Testament, we also see things happening at a higher level. We see, for example, we see in Acts that the Gentile churches took up an offering to send to the Jerusalem church when there was a famine. Get just a, a very practical demonstration of what unity looks like. We are, we are suffering together with you. We see this in, uh, when after Paul's conversion and his calling to go to the Gentiles, he goes back, to, he's in Jerusalem, he meets with Peter, James, and John, and he explains to them, this is, this is my calling to the nations. And they affirm that, and he says, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. That, that's a beautiful example we see Paul's mission team is made up, it's quite a fluid team, but there are people in and out. They stay, they go, different things, but they're from different churches, different countries. It's quite the multicultural team. That's all good. That's all, that's all healthy. 
Karen and I saw this for ourselves recently. We were in Panama. We uh, attended the International Council on Evangelical Theological Education. I know you're all thinking, how did I miss that one? <laughs> it was quite exciting. Um, I mean, you know, Hebrew verbs and stuff, it was amazing. But um, it, was, it was there over 500 people from all over the world gathered together. And it was a joy to, to sing together, to hear the word opened by people from, from all over the world to us. It really was a joy. And, and I remember uh, one moment when uh, we, we learned that some of the people coming to, to join the meeting were denied entry into Panama. It's like, oh, you know, kind of what a couple of you just did. Even though I didn't know these people, I've grown because there's politics and stuff at play. I don't know what happened. But I thought, oh, that's, I don't even know the person, but I'm sorry they can't be here. You know, it, that's, that's a part of what this looks like above a, a local church level. And just yesterday I was chatting with a, a young man in South Asia. His family is one of the first believers from his people, Karen met him on a, on a writing project, and, and we've been in touch. And we're literally chatting yesterday. I asked how he was doing, and he said, well, you know, my uncle's just been arrested. And he said, wait a minute. He was gone for a second. He came back. He said, my brother. No, he said, my uncle has been beaten. He said, my brother has just been arrested by the army. And, you know, what can you, we're thousands of kilometers away. What can you do? You know, we sought to encourage him. Our heart goes out to him. Karen and I pray for him. But, you know, we, we feel that. We're, in, in some sense, we're connected for, for the gospel's sake. So, you know, that's the idea. That's, that's what it's supposed to look like. Not that we do it perfectly, but I'm, I'm very encouraged by how I see us model. Um, and I know we certainly don't do it perfectly, and I know that we've, we've had our own troubled waters that we passed through, but, you know, honestly, I've been encouraged by the level of maturity I've seen in the congregation as a whole. And so, um, certainly not perfect, but I'm, I'm encouraged by what I've seen. But we see the, the challenge of it. We um, understand what Jesus wants us to have, we have wants us to have and how he wants us to live, and yet we, we know we don't live up to it perfectly. So again, let's think about how this looks at the, at the church level. We need to understand first that Jesus knew this would be a challenge. Just getting along had been a challenge for his first disciples, right? He, he unloads some profound kingdom teaching, and then... Suddenly, in response, his disciples have an argument about who's greatest. <laughs> you just don't get it. We talked about this last time, right? He, you know, he's, he says these things about his disciples. They've, they've received my words. They've embraced it. They've owned it. And, I mean, just moments before, they may say, we don't understand. What do you mean? Even when they say they do understand, he says, you don't really get it. And yet... There they were. They did, it had been a challenge. And, and then, of course, they're all from the same culture. They're all Jewish. But then there was a, quite a range between that. I mean, just think of two of them. Okay, you have Matthew and Simon. Not Simon Peter, but the other Simon. Now, Simon was from a, a group called the Zealots. The Zealots hated the Romans and wanted to throw off the Roman rule, even if it came to revolution. They were, would be happy with the political solution, with the overthrow of the Romans. Matthew was a tax collector, so he collected taxes from his people, collected more than he was supposed to, so extortion, 
and pay taxes to Rome. So you have in the same room somebody who hates Rome, somebody who serves Rome. Now you talk about an awkward Christmas dinner, right? I mean, we don't know how many of the disciples heard this prayer. Obviously, John heard it. He's the one that's, that's written it. But did the others hear it? You know, I read this and I'm thinking, for Matthew and Simon, you know, do they hear this? Do they look at each other? like, yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> Maybe they hit each other. You know, it's like our brothers do. It's like, oh, man, what are we going to do? We have, there, are, there are more important things than, than our preferences. And then you add to that the cultural differences that the church would encounter as it went to different cultures and different people groups. And we see the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament occupied with that, that great issue. What happens is people from different cultural backgrounds, they come to Christ. What does repentance and faith look like? What does church look like? They're wrestling with these questions. Do they have to become Jewish first? All of those things they're having to wrestle with to preserve the unity of the church. So Jesus knew it would be an issue for them. Knew it would be an issue for us. He gave us great passages like Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 that tell us if we have problems with other people, whether the problem is we have failed or they have failed, we are to go to them. Right? Matthew 5, you're presenting an offering and remember you have your brother or something against you. Go to him and make it right before you present your offering. Matthew 18, if someone sins, go to him. Address that with him. If they listen, thank, thanks be to God. If they don't, take somebody else with you. If they still don't listen, bring them before the church. And if they still don't listen, remove them. For the sake of unity, Jesus said there are some people you have to remove. Doesn't sound very unifying, but we realize it's it, it may be a bit more complex than, than we might want to think. Paul gave similar instruction Galatians six to his churches, and he modeled it right. He went Galatians two. He went to Simon Peter. I mean, you know, first pope. <laughs> he went to Simon Peter, and he says, "You, buddy, are betraying the gospel." But Simon Peter had withdrawn fellowship from Gentile believers with Jewish. Christians came, came to town and Paul confronted him to his face because it was a gospel issue. This wasn't just, Peter, I don't like you, Peter, you this, that. No, it is. It was a gospel issue that, that caused Paul to confront Peter. So there, there are places and times for that. Maybe you've been at part of a church that's experienced conflict. I know we've, we've passed through a couple of those seasons here and, and thankful that we've weathered those, but it's painful. I remember when we were in Romania, and we, we were in a church there in Bucharest, and the church had to remove somebody. It was a painful thing, but the church was unified. And it was, although it was painful, it was beautiful in a way. It was sad, you know, you understand. Literally within weeks, conflict arose between the, the pastor and one of the elders, and these same men who had handled this discipline issue so well handled the second issue so poorly. It just was astounding and grievous. And the church wound up split. It was like watching children. <clears throat> I pastored a church before we moved to Romania in the early 90s. I pastored a church that had come out of a church split. And that church was, it was crippled by that. And, you know, it wasn't going to happen, but I, I have thought over the years, you know, I think they would have been better off if they just could have agreed on Whatever it was, it divided. And it wasn't theological. And you know, when we when we get mad at somebody, we make a spiritual reason. You know, I've got theological problems with them because, you know, obviously, 
carpet should be red. Because the blood of Jesus or something. You know? So we, we all make it spiritual. Reality is we're just fallen. And um, yeah, so I think, let's uh, see, in my church, you know, the, the thing you, we do this with our kids in English, we would our hands and we say, you know, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, and I open the door and hear all the people. So in my church, preaching there one Sunday, I said, you know this poem, I said, so uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and here's the same bunch of knuckleheads that started this church 10 years ago. That's <laughs> kind of what we were dealing with. They were very close because of the pain of the conflict, but it made it very difficult for anybody else to become a part. Fun times, right? Well, what does this look like on a, on a larger scale then? So when we look around at, at global Christianity, we may be tempted to be discouraged because you perceive a lack of unity. You read about Christianity and wonder why there's a Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church in their various countries. They actually divided in the year 1054. Mark that one on your calendars. But, um, you know, and you wonder why. And, and I mean, those who were part of those traditions say the church was no longer one, you know, for now over a thousand years, or, yeah, almost. And um, I think, well, that was an institutional unity that was fragile from the beginning. So I'm, I'm not sure anything really changed. But you may wonder why. We have all these different denominations. We have uh, Church of England, we have Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, Episcopalian, Churches of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Evangelical, Free, and then there's Bible churches, and then there's non-denominational churches that just don't name, you know, just church. I was preparing this and just thinking, okay, what is that like? You know, there's, there's dozens of these major, large denominations of international presence, but you dive deeper, you dig deeper, and each of these has their own divisions. I'm, as I've said, I'm Baptist background. I just prepared for this. Within less than a minute, I had 10 kinds of Baptists. <laughs> like, is that, a, is that a problem? Well, yes and no. Okay. So sometimes people find this as a barrier to believing. And this is exactly what Jesus said, right? Our, our, just as our unity is a powerful witness, our, our disunity, our lack of unity is a deluded witness. So let me share a few things with you that may help you if you have these conversations. Maybe it's been an issue for you, maybe you've had these conversations. First, it's probably wise just to acknowledge things are not as they should be. Yep, some of this is sinful, some of it is embarrassing to the Lord and the gospel and the kingdom. And we, uh, there may not be much we can do about it right now. Uh, second thing is among all these different groups, you'll find actually a remarkable degree of agreement on major doctrines. So even though we are from 25, 30 different countries today, maybe that many denominational backgrounds, if I ask you how many gods there are, what are you going to tell me? One God. How many, in how many persons does this one God exist? Awkward question, but I think you know the answer. That's right, three. What do we call those three? Father, Son, Spirit, all together. The shorthand word for that is Trinity. That's right. What is this one God of three persons like? What's he like? Loving. Loving. Holy. Holy, just, right. eternal, all-knowing, all-wise, gracious, kind. You're not going to object to any of those things, right? What does he do? Created. He sustains the creation. 
rules, who judges, who saves. Any objections to that? Good, so ordered. <laughs> right? What about humanity? How are we created? The image of God. What's wrong with us? We're fallen. Okay. Right? We, we agree on things like that. What about Jesus? He's divine. He's human. Two natures, one person. How does that work? You know, I don't really know. But that's what Scripture tells us. He took on human nature. He died for our sins and rose again. You ask any Christian anywhere in the world, how are you saved? They're going to say, Jesus died and rose again. Now, we may disagree on a lot of other things, on some important things, but you're, I'm saying the level of agreement is more than people who object to this might think. And I hope, hope that makes sense. Think of the Holy Spirit, right? Divine, personal, our indwelling teacher, guide, produces fruit, gives salvation only through Christ, right? He died and rose again. The church, who is that? That's those who believe in Jesus. What's our future hope? Jesus returns. There's a resurrection. There's a final judgment. There's a new heavens. There's a new earth. So, um, you just passed systematic theology class, right? But, I mean, just think of, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there were no major objections to what we just called out. Even though we are from many different countries, many different confessional backgrounds, there is more of a shared consensus than people might want to admit. Third thing, a lot of the differences are due to the way churches are done. That is, time, different cultures, different, uh, different cultural contexts, people... Even looking at scripture and in light of their context, they come up with different answers to questions like, what's the church? Who can be members? How do we receive them? How do we baptize? You know, you can sprinkle, pour, immerse, that kind of thing. Uh, do we baptize? Who leads the church? Do we have pastor? Do we have elders? Do we have bishops? Do we have... All I'm saying is Christians have come with, from a high view of scripture with different answers to those questions. And that is part of why church is done differently. It's... It's a different culture. I had a, in seminary for a while, I had an African roommate, and I go to church whenever he could go to his church with him when he was preaching. It was so much fun. It was just, it was just engaging, lively worship. And uh, I enjoyed it. He, had, he was a good preacher, fed from the Word. It was good. Didn't do that every week, but I enjoyed it. I was in Richmond. I was blessed by it. We've, We've lived in Romania, we've worshipped countries all over the world, and we're enriched by those things. That's, that's okay. But church is done differently in different cultural contexts, and that's okay. But sometimes it's it's just sin, it's bad. A fourth thing, <laughs> sometimes you're right, it just is, sorry. Uh, you know, they don't put it, they don't put that on their side, you know, we're we're a sinful church. <laughs> you know, we're wrong, everybody else is right. Um, nobody does that. A fourth thing, one of the reasons there's so many denominations really is a reflection of U.S. culture that is rights-obsessed and consumer-driven. And so in American culture, if there's something you don't like, whether it's a business, uh, a, a school, a marriage, or a church, if you don't like it, you just start your own. And that's what America, that's kind of how our American context does. It is, it is very open to new things happening, and so if you're not happy at church, you can find one you like, or you can start your own. And so that is one reason we have these. Many of them are not healthy. Some of them are. I think all of this will run its course in due time. In terms of world history, it's a fairly recent development. So 
just try to help people see the bigger picture of this. Some of it is, is a reflection of, of North American culture, and we have shared that with the world. And pretty amazing. You, know, you can just see all these wacky denominations all over the world. Because North America, as we have exported all. That's why I said to us, we just send the pictures. We don't know what to do with them. So. Uh, okay, you really could have laughed at that. <laughs> so fifth thing, uh, with, with all due respect to Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, there's nothing in Scripture that I find that suggests our unity has to be administrative or institutional. Visible, yes. Relational, yes. Doctrinal, yes. Experiential, practical, yes. But in terms of institutional, I don't see Scripture requiring that. And so I... You know, again, with all due respect to our Catholic friends, I don't think all of us coming under communion of the, the Pope in Rome is going to bring about the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. So, last thing is what you're looking for. Some division is due to false teachers, and the New Testament warns us about these. The popularity of the false only reinforces the value of the true. Okay? I mean, who of you, once you heard there was counterfeit money, went and burned all your money? He's saying, well, it's not a mistake. I'm just not going to have anything else to do with money because there's fake money. Nobody does that. Why? Because real money is valuable. That's why people make fake money so they can get the value of the real for much less cost. Why is there false doctrine? Why is there false Christianity? They want the benefits without the cost. Without the cost of fun. And so, just understand, sometimes... There is division because there are people who say they are Christian. There are churches and groups who claim to be Christian. They are not. So, all right, 12 o'clock. I just finished the first point. So, <laughs> sorry, the next two are really short. So we, we look at verse 24. And Jesus prays for our future, for our future glory. The last request he makes, it's, it's, it's tender. You know, Father, I desire that these be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. Isn't that beautiful? He, he longs for us to come to Him. I, I'm always touched as I read the account of the Lord's Supper and, and Jesus he takes the wine and He says, I will not drink of this again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. There's a sense of which he is, he is waiting for us. He is longing for the, the totality, the fullness of that bride to be gathered. And it's, it's sweet and it's beautiful. And he, he longs for us to be with Him, to see His glory to enjoy His glory in, in all of its fullness. We get a little taste of it now, but He wants us to see that in its fullness. He says earlier, I, I've said these things that my joy may be, and them may be made full. And so on. And then, in the last two verses, as, as He concludes His prayer, He affirms, really, these are, these are relationships. He talks about the relationship of the world to God. He says, the world doesn't know you. But then there is the relationship between Jesus and His Father. I have known you. I do know you. The relationship of the disciples to Jesus. These have known that you sent me. That change that brings them from the world into the kingdom. And then there's the relationship of Jesus to his disciples. I've made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known. So even after he is crucified, after he is raised, after he returns to the Father, he continues to pray. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says he lives to intercede for us. We saw this the last our last sermon on this. In, in Luke 22, Jesus prayed for Simon Peter, even though Satan had demanded permission to sit to him like wheat. In Jesus' intercession for Peter, he said, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
Now, Peter would fail, okay? But Jesus' intercession didn't prevent Peter from being tempted. It didn't prevent him from failing. It, it guaranteed his return. So if you today are discouraged and feel overwhelmed with your own failures, no, Jesus is praying for you. He is at the Father's right hand praying for all of us, praying for each of us, praying like He prayed in John 17, praying that we will be one, praying that we will brought into, be brought into such a relationship with the Father to know His love. Remember we said you drill down deep into who God is. He is a Father. It's a relational term. He loves us. Jesus loves us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He lives to pray for us. That is, that is His passion. That is His heart. And He prays that the Father's love will be made real in us. He will continue to make the Father known to us. On and on. He continues to work and labor for our good. So, we wrap this up. First, you need to understand we are meant to be in community. That is what all of this is about. We're meant to live in unity. Not, we cannot live in isolation. You need a church home. We need the church. The church needs us. But you need the church. You may not need ICP, but you need a church. And sometimes people say, I need the church, which is a way of going to a church. If you understand what I'm saying. You need to be part of a local community of believers who can speak into your life and you into theirs. Real Christ-honoring unity exists among believers even if we have seasons of conflict. Uh, finally, just to look at these last two points again, this hope of seeing Jesus in His glory should encourage us in our present trials, give us greater things to think about than, than the sufferings. And know, as I just said a moment ago, He lives to intercede for us and to make the Father known to us, cling to Him, worship Him, serve Him, obey Him, love Him, you will find everything for which your heart hungers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are to us in Christ, for being our Father, for not being our enemy, for your forgiveness. We thank you. Thank you, Father, for the unity we've experienced in this church from the gospel. We pray you'll continue. Pray you'll help us to move forward in a way that honors you, that, that our witness to this city, this country, to all who come our way will be effective and fruitful for your sake among the nations. In Jesus' name.